see you this morning. Great job, worship team. Thank you, Jody. Although, if I had tripped, it would have been hilarious. Hilarious. Oh, let me go back here. There we go. Hey, if we don't have your information, we would love your phone number so we can send you spam. No, I'm just kidding. It's not what we want at all. Anyway, if you text the word welcome to 307-224-4404, if you haven't already, it would really help us to get to know each other. We could connect with you and keep you in the loop. And if you like being in the loop and those kind of things, we'd greatly appreciate it. So today we're starting a new series called Powerful People, and I'm very excited about it. It's a, pro- it's a product of a, of a long journey. Uh, I've, uh, the study part's been, been several months, but the Actual background uh, has been probably into the years level part of it. So I've been, I'm pretty excited about it. I think it's going to be a great summer series. Um, and, and, you know, I was talking to Bruce after the first service this morning, and I just said to him, and I, so I, I want to say to you, my, I want to build powerful people. I want the, the church of God to be ready for whatever comes. And to do that, you just got to be strong within and so some of the things I'm going to talk about are going to sound a little bit ordinary and, and really, really practical, but I'm going to ask you to bear, in there, bear with me because what, what I am learning is that supernatural power is connected to very ordinary things. And so today we're going to learn how to move from a place of powerlessness to a place of, of power. We live in a world that's just all about fear, man. The news is all fear-based. Everything you hear, last, the last year or year and a half, however long it's been now, uh, I remember when we were starting 2021, people were like, oh, I'm so glad 20's over. And I'm like, yeah, what if we, are, like, we look back on 2020 fondly one day? What, what if that's like that? That's just that fear that's there. And fear disempowers you. Fear takes away your strength and your your ability to do things, it robs you. And so we're going to talk today about how to to move into places of more power. We're going to start with a verse that we've talked about a lot, 2 Timothy 1.7. We're going to talk about it a lot more. In fact, we're going to talk about it so much that I hope you have it memorized by the time that we're done with this series, okay? But let me read it and I'll start there. God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. I was, uh, as I was studying this series, I, I, I'm ask, I began to ask myself, because I certainly deal with some fears and anxieties, and I began to ask myself, what am I afraid of? What are people afraid of? What, where, what's driving this fear? And, and this is the conclusion I came to, and I'm not saying it's the only conclusion, but this is the conclusion that I came to about just normal, ordinary life stuff. I think we're afraid of pain, think we're afraid of pain. At least that's so for me. And I think we learned that fear when we were like real small, toddlers or something, and, and we're moving around the house, and, and, and mom was like, hey, don't pull on that doily. We didn't know what a doily was, but she said that. <laughs> and the lamp came over on our head, and we experienced pain. And before we even had memories, before we were even able to remember things, we began to believe that pain is bad. And here's the lie. We believe that all pain is bad. But that's not true. Some of your best life is on the other side of pain. Your marriage 
It may be the worst conflict your relationship has ever had. You get through that conflict, and on the other side of that is the best relationship you've ever known. That's definitely been true for Chris and I over the years. Your best waistline. (laughs) Probably on the other side of a lot of blood, sweat, tears, screaming, crying on the asphalt somewhere in the community. The other side of the pain. Not all pain is bad. Good pain helps you grow. Good pain makes you wiser. Good pain gives you understanding. There is such a thing as bad pain. Wasted pain. Pain that makes things worse. Pain that drives the wounds deeper. Pain that accelerates and escalates the anxiety in our lives. There There is such a thing as bad pain. But we shouldn't fear all pain. And so we're talking about how to move from a place of fear to a place of power, a place of strength, how to take what God says in his word. Because God said he hasn't given us a spirit of fear and timidity. So that spirit, that influence, that that wind that blows on your soul of fear and and, and overcautiousness is not from the throne room. It's not from the vertical plane, it's from the horizontal plane. But here's what does blow from the throne room. The influence from the throne room of God, the the pneuma, the spirit, is a spirit of power. It's a spirit of love. And it's a spirit of self-control. Everybody say self. Self. Self-control. We'll talk about that more in a little bit, okay? It's a power that's in you. And this is from God. And I'm going to tell you, I will, I will share with you my opinions and different things today, but this is not my opinion. This is the Word of God. And He says that you right now, as a free, reborn son or daughter of God, have within you a spirit, an influence of power and of love and of self-control. It's there right now in every one of you that follows Jesus Christ. So how do we tap into that? How do, we, how do we move from a place of powerlessness to a place of power? So today I'm going to look at a very interesting story. Oh, I haven't started my timer. That means I can go as long as I want to. <laughs> Hallelujah. It's a gift from the Lord. I want to look at a story today about Sarah, Sarah, Abram, and Hagar. And uh, we're going to look at what I'm calling a love strangulation. Because... Because we're driving at this idea that love drives out fear. You know what? I need to make one more, one more clarification before I go forward. I don't have any magic bullets. In fact, I'm more like Barney Fife with the gun in the pocket and the, the bullet over here. And when I put it in the gun, I shoot in the wrong direction. That, I'm, I'm, that's really kind of me. I don't have magic bullets. What I have are principles and God's promises that when applied and used and believed begin to change your life. I believe in miracles. Oh, yes, I believe in miracles, and I believe in deliverance. But even miracles have a pre-process before them. There is a season before the miracle that prepares you for the miracle. And so we're going to talk about that season before and what we can do practically to live in power. So 
Back into our love strangulation, Genesis chapter 16. So I have three background texts. If you're taking detailed notes and want to disprove anything I say later, here they are. I'll let you do it. Genesis 16, Genesis 21, and Galatians chapter 4 in the first verse of 5. That's the background for today's message. So let's start Genesis 16.1. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him. But she had an Egyptian servant, servant named Hagar. Is anyone else old enough to remember the cartoon, Hagar, the horrible? Every time I read her name, that's what I think of. Is, you're like, Michael, that's so carnal. Yeah, that's who I am. That's who I am. That's who I am. So that was a, whole, that was a worship joke. All right, so, so Sarah said to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed because he was really stupid with Sarah's proposal. So Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram, his wife. This happened 10 years after Abraham had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress Sarah with contempt. What a story. I'm telling you, if you thought the Bible was rated G, you're not reading that thing. You are not reading it we got to keep it clean for church. Have you read what's in the Bible? Anyway, so you have this love strangulation. And, and you, have this, um, you have a free man, Abram, who God had visited in his homeland and said, I want you to leave everything you know, go to Canaan land. I want you to live on promise. I want you to live from my inheritance, the inheritance of God, not the inheritance of your father. So he had a free man who has a free wife, Sarah, who's later going to be called Sarah. So I'll interchange their names and confuse the heck out of you later, okay? And, and so they, they are free. They are in God's family. God found them. God picked them. They are free, reborn family of God. And then you have Hagar, and Hagar is not free. Hagar is a slave. In the house of the free, there is a slave. And that's where the problem begins. We have bondage in the house of the free. We have three people, Hagar, Sarah, Abram, and, and we have this influence, this immoral thing, these horrific dynamics of slavery in the house of the free. And it creates this stupid, like a love triangle. I don't even think it was a love. It was more of a, a utilitarian, useful triangle. It was just crazy and dumb. But in this situation, you have the last thing you have is love here. You have fear, you have anxiety, you have, you have a, a woman who God has said to her, through her husband, that she's going to have a, a, a child, a child of promise, and she's struggling with the promise of God. So much of the Bible is so relatable, guys. And so she decides to find a, make her own way and use someone else, use a slave to get there. I'd like to kind of hone in on what we have here. This is a this is a, a cycle. This, this is a thing that you see in a lot of relationships and a lot of places. You have this idea of the villain, the victim, and the hero. So we start out in the situation, and, and God's the villain. God won't give me a child. And then, then Sarah's the victim. You know, she can't, she can't do anything about it. God hasn't fulfilled his promise. And Abram's the hero. 
But as it turns around and begins to, the situation begins to grow, then you have Hagar who becomes the victim. And you have Sarah being the villain, trying to control everybody. And Abram's still trying to be the hero, but he's also like most men and wandering around and not knowing what to do with himself. And say, Michael, be nice to men. I'm just, we men can take it, right guys? We can take a few jokes. That's why they make fun of us. We have a sense of humor. So... Now you're just going, what did he really say there? And so let's move on before I have to clarify anything. <laughs> what you have, though, is you have this shell game going on where everybody's switching places. Sarah's the victim. Sarah's the villain. Hagar's the victim. A- Abram's the hero. Abram's the victim. And on and on it goes. This is how so many relationships work. There's just always a victim, always a villain, and always a hero. And, and I'm going to tell you what. Those dynamics are just chaos. They do not work. There are no, there are no, there are no villains, victims, or heroes in the kingdom of God. There is only Jesus. And he, he saves the victims, saves the villains, and saves the heroes too. And so this idea, this is a, a triangulation, a strangulation of love, and it creates the cycle of powerlessness. And what we want is we want out of that cycle. We want to break free from the love strangulation because we need to connect with people. We need to love people. We need to move in that area of our lives. Because what's going on with us is God made us with a a deep-seated, irrevocable need to be connected. Connected vertically to Him. Connected horizontally to other people in our lives, spouses, children, friends. We are created for this connection but we're afraid of pain. We're terrified of pain. And so what happens is rather than than expressing the vulnerability that's necessary to connect with people, we, we protect ourselves and we create a life of isolated disconnection, but we try to stay in the general vicinity. So a couple will come along, they've been married a while, they have enough distrust and betrayal because they haven't understood a lot of things, and rather than being connected and one before God, they actually become disconnected, and they they live two disconnected lives in the same house and call that connection because they're in close proximity. But everything they do for each other and with each other is for the purpose of maintaining a distance, not getting close to each other. How do we get out of this cycle? How do we as Christians stop living in these powerless ways? So first, I want to do two things. I want to identify powerlessness. I want to identify the terms that we use and and see it in our lives. And then I want to show you what what it is to be powerful. And all of this is... Uber practical. You know what that means? Uber practical? It just means it's really practical. Okay. But it was me trying to be cool, so it sounded kind of dumb. But still, <laughs> practical. Genesis 16. We, I'm going to use Sarah because Sarah looks like she grew as a person. I don't know if she got fat or not, but she grew from Genesis 16 to Genesis 21. The Lord has prevented me from having children. This is where the trouble starts. And I'm going to call this an I can't statement. I can't have children. It's God's fault. I can't do anything about it. And, 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 and so I want you to see here what this really is, is it's a powerless language. That when you say things, well, I can't do that, or I don't have the, uh, the ability to do that, or I, 
I have to do that. When we use these kind of terminologies, what we're saying is that I'm powerless, that someone else is making the decisions in my life. Several weeks ago, I was, or a couple weeks ago, I was driving across one of the states in this beautiful country, and I can't remember which one. All I know is that after about 20 hours in the car, they all look about the same, and you're just like, get me there. And I was driving across the country, and I got a phone call or a text from somebody, and they said, hey, would you do this thing for us, and, you know, so forth. And I got to look at my calendar, and I was back in town, but it was just not going to work. And so my, my natural is powerlessness. And this is what my, my text started out as. I was, well, I'm afraid I can't help you that day. I've got other things going on. That's what I wanted to say. I can't. That's my natural. Because what I'm trying to say is, you know, I have no control over me. So I can't do what you want. But I've been going through, I've been studying this material. I've been thinking about this, the Word of God. I've been thinking about power, that I have power. And I began to realize this is not an I can't situation. I, I just have other priorities that, are, that need to be above this, and so I'm not available to do it. That's all it is. It's not an I can't. It's just I've got other plans. Did you know that you could say to someone, I have plans, and that's totally okay? And do you know that if they grill you about what are, that that's none of their business? Did you know that? I didn't for a long time. It's freeing. <laughs> oh, man, I, I'm sorry. I have other plans. I'm not a, so I texted him back. I, I, I am honored that you asked me, and I truly was honored. I said, I am not available that day. That was it. It was a text. That's why I love text. You can do two sentences and be done. If the phone call turns into paragraphs and hours, and, and you can get in a lot of trouble on a phone call. Anybody else got it? That's why I like to text. I commit to way less by text. My point is, is that we had a, have a lot of language in our life that is, that is powerless. How about this one? I'll try. Hey, could you come over and mow my grass on Saturday? Not that anyone asked you that. You could say, I'll try. Now, what you should say is, no, mow your own grass. <laughs> but you're a nice person, Right? She so say, I'll try. Why do you say I'll try? It gives you an out. Well, I tried. I mean, you didn't try. You lied. That's what you did. You didn't try. But you didn't get it done, so you left yourself an out. But it's powerlessness. And you know, just, just a thing you can do, by the way. If you, because uh, I get committed to stuff on the spot, because I have a hard time saying no on the spot. I'm a people pleaser, and I want you to love me as much as I love me, and that's impossible. And... Uh, <coughs> And so, you know, I realize I'll get in conversations, people ask me to do things, and, uh, and I really, nowadays, I really try to say, I, you know, let me think about it, let me talk to my wife about it, let me pray about it, but sometimes I'll just commit, and then I'll realize later, I don't have time for it, it's going to cost me too much. You do know that every yes says no to something else, and every no says yes to something else. And so, uh, anyway, it's just, sometimes you just have to call back and apologize. I, I'm sorry, I overcommitted, I cannot do it. You know how, how amazing that is and how, how openly it is to the other person to just tell them the truth, how much you're honoring them. Anyway, my point is, when I hear powerless language come out of my mouth, I need to ask myself what I'm afraid of. Where's my love here? I need to begin to look inside of me. Does that make sense? You still with me? 
Michael, I don't like the content, but yeah, I'm with you. That's good. So first we have the issue of powerless language. Our language is powerless. Then we have the issue of control. So let's raise your hand. Who has control? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I, I didn't mean that. Sarah says this in, in Genesis 16:2. go and sleep with my servant. She is dictating what she wants to happen here. She's telling everybody what to do. I was in a conversation with someone uh, several months ago. We were talking about a situation that was a great situation. And uh, I'm trying not to indicate in any way who this person was, male or female or anything like that. We were talking about the situation. And finally, the person said back to me about someone else that was involved in it. She's, this person said, well, I'll just, I'll just tell them to do it. And I went back, well, so what if you tell them to do it? That doesn't mean they'll do it. And the person replied, I'll make them do it. And I laughed. Because that works famously, right? Moms, works famously, right? I'll make them do it. That's a, that's a, that's a spirit of control. But it's not a spirit of self-control. It, it's, a, it's not a, a spirit that comes from a throne room. You see... Sarah is trying to have control over Abram and Hagar and even God. That's, she's trying to tell them what to do to fix her situation. There's something she thinks is going to meet her needs. Something she thinks is going to give her relief. She's found a human way, a human effort way, she thinks, to accomplish that. And so she's to do that, though, for that to work out exactly as she has it in her mind, everyone has to do it the way she tells them to do it. That is being controlling. And it backfires big. It backfires. She, in this moment, she makes a decision that is going to put the next 12-plus years of her life, in no, 30-plus years of her life, in absolute chaos. Okay, just by trying to be controlling. So when you hear yourself trying to control someone who's not you, when you hear yourself trying to control someone who's not you, that's powerless language. Okay, so the next thing, the next thing we hear out of a powerless person is we see this thing of consumption. Genesis 16, 2, Sarah thinks about Hagar, perhaps I can have ch children through her. Powerless people don't have power of their own, so they need your power. They need someone else's power or what someone else has. That's called a consumer. They need to consume what you have or use what you have to accomplish whatever purpose or design they have in their own life. And, and, and many of you have been on the receiving end of a consumer. You ever been around that person that you know you have to really build yourself up before you go see them because they are going to suck the life out of you <laughs> while you're with them? I'm not trying to make them look bad or make you mad at them. I'm just trying to show you that there, are, that there is a way that you can consume and use people. And that's what Sarah's doing. She's trying to use something that Hagar has for her own benefit. So when you hear this weak language, when you, when you try and consume people, when you try and control people, and this is, it's not my favorite, but it's the one that makes me the, kind of the angriest. So back to Genesis 16. This was Sarah's idea. This was Sarah's plan. Everyone did what Sarah said to do. And in verse 5, after everything blows up, Sarah looks at Abram, her docile and absolutely clueless husband, 
and says to him, and every guy in the room is going to pass out when they hear this, says to him, this is all your fault. (laughs) Not just guys. Everyone's been down this road. Everyone's got this. It has happened. Someone has controlled them. Someone has manipulated them. There's someone in your life you've done everything they wanted to do, and then when it all blew up, they looked at you and said, it's your fault. Everyone has had that happen. Blame, baby. That's what the world lives for. That's the kind of society we live in today. It's not about pursuing righteousness or the right thing or even success. It's about who to blame when you don't achieve it. And and to me, it's nuts. Blame is nuts. And here's why. It helps no one. Let's say you... uh, I don't know. Let's, let's use a big example that maybe won't get me in a lot of trouble. It might get me in a lot of trouble. Who cares? Anyway, so let's say you, you decide that you want the government to take responsibility for your paycheck, your health care, I don't know, uh, well, whatever. You want them to take control of it. And don't ask me my political opinions on that. That's not my point. My point is, why would anyone give someone else the responsibility and power over their life like that? Why would they take the place of powerlessness? I don't understand it, but I ask the question, why? Here's why. I don't know if you know this, but the government kind of has a bad track record on pretty much everything. (laughs) Economy, everything, just all of it. So the chances of them failing are high, right? Why would you take that risk? Here's why. Because when they totally goof it up, it's their fault. It's not your fault. It's their fault. Here's the problem with that thinking. Are you ready? You still have to live with the consequences. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So that's what blame is. Blame is if I can give someone else the power, give someone else the responsibility, I don't have to have it. When it fails, then it won't be my fault. But I will still be living with the consequences. I will still have to endure the pain. I will still have to go through all this stuff. This is why you need to move. We all have to move from powerless thinking to powerful thinking. Because I am going to have to endure the consequences. I would like to at least have had some say in the choices that were made. Does that make sense? So, and if I really didn't intend that to be political, but if it was, now you kind of know where I'm at on that subject. So, oops. The last thing I want to point out about Sarah is in verse 6. So, so Hagar got pregnant, and then Hagar acted like a spoiled brat and made everybody's life miserable because that's what slaves do. Slaves, when given a little bit of power, use that power to terrorize other people like they've been terrorized. And so Hagar began to terrorize the family. Sarah regrets the decision, and Sarah then began to treat Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away in verse 6. Any of you guys ever had to deal with a bully in school? Just give me a nod, a bully. I had a few. Tried to be one, but I was too nice. I couldn't, couldn't do it. What is a bully? A bully is a terrified human being who's putting on a mask of violence. That's what a bully is. They're trying to use a mask, a charade, to keep you from getting close. And that's what we see Sarah do. She 
runs Hagar out of the home. She's made a bad decision. It's produced a horrific uh, reaction in the family. And the family's enduring chaos, and so her solution to that, rather than accept blame, rather than to, to move into some places of repentance and what have you, is to drive out the problem. If I can make the problem go away, we'll be at peace again. So when we move in this, all this coming out of a spirit of anxiety and deep-seated fear. So I want you to see that how your language sounds, the way you try to control people, the way you use people, the blame that you lay, and the anxiety that's driven deep and manifesting in these ways that are repelling people from you. It's all powerlessness. That's what it is. And so I, we take a minute and we start here with their life and we identify it. And if we see those places in our lives, and I do, and I'm an avid student of the Word and I pursue Jesus Christ and... and, and I have a lot, but I have a lot of growing to do. And so I see places of powerlessness in my life. What am I going to do? Am I just going to sit there in my powerlessness? As long as I have someone to blame, is that going to make me happy? As, as long as there's someone I can find to consume? As long as I can hide my fear and anxiety behind some kind of mask? Am I, am I going to be okay? Or am I going to take God at His word? Where God says, I have given you a spirit of power and a spirit of love and a spirit of self-control. How can I take God's word and begin to walk in that practically? This is theology that is lived. And to you can't live your theology, it's just headspace. You've got to have a practical application. It has to be something you can use and live or you won't even remember it. Just head knowledge otherwise. So what do we do? We, we want to move from a place of fear to a place of love, a place of disconnection to a place of real connection. But there's only one person in this world that I have control over. Only one. I have a wife and eight sons. How many grandkids do we have two? Eight grandkids. They're not coming over today, are they? Okay. All right. This is my son Cody up here. He looks like Jesus. I tell him that all the time. His, his best friend also looks like Jesus, so I call him Jesus and James when they're walking around. When they're good, I say, what would Jesus do? When they're bad, I say, what would James do? Anyway. Sorry about that. There are so many people in my life that it would be easy to assume I have control over, but I don't. I only have control over me. That's all that God gives me is control over me. So, how do we reclaim our power? So we're going to move from Genesis 16 through Genesis 21 that I'm not going to cover. In Genesis 21, Sarah throws out the slave and her son. There you go, Genesis 21, done. And we're going to go to Galatians 4, where Paul gives us an explanation of that event. Galatians 4, verse 30 says, What do the Scriptures say about that? Bondage, slavery. What do the Scriptures say about that? Get rid of the slave and her son. For the son of the slave woman will not share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. So, 
dear brothers and sisters. We are not children of the slave woman. We, say we. We We are children of the free woman. So, Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. I want you to see that how we move from a place of powerlessness to a place of power is through these powerful things called choices. Choices. You see, the Sarah of Genesis 16 is, is an immature and weak and powerless woman. But the Sarah of Genesis 21 is a free, reborn daughter of the king. And so we move from a woman who's trying to manipulate and control and who's living in fear and and who's trying to to manipulate everything to a woman who now just makes a choice. Because what happened in Genesis 21 is that at uh, Isaac's bar mitzvah, Ishmael is mocking Isaac. The slave is mocking the freeborn son, which is why we have the persecution that we have in our world today. The slave will always mock the son. So the slave is mocking the son. At this point, Sarah's no longer a manipulator. Sarah knows she can make powerful choices, and the choice she makes is this. It's time for the slave to go. It was time for Sarah to grow and time for Hagar to go. And that's how it has to be in our lives. We have to realize that we have the power to make choices. You know, I love, I love the supernatural. I love what the Holy Spirit does. I love the power of it. But here's something that God is showing me too. I mean, yes, I have seen some miracles. I've seen God do some awesome things. But you know what's also supernaturally powerful? When a man or woman of God makes a hard choice just because it's the right thing to do. That is also supernaturally empowered and can produce supernatural fruits. And so we need to realize that, that the power, that we move from powerlessness to power through this simple thing of the choices that we make. <clears throat> Hang on. I, I was about to get ahead of myself. Whew, I'm back. Okay. Back to our verse, 2 Timothy 1.6. God's not given us a spirit of not of fear, but of power. Oh, I changed translations. That's why I'm confused now. But God is not... God, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So let's begin with this. Not even God, not even God wants to control you. Michael, I don't know. He sounds kind of controlling. That's because his arch enemy is a liar. That's why God sounds controlling. Okay. Let me prove it to you. All right, you ready? God creates this amazing world. And in the middle of this amazing world that he creates, he places an even more amazing garden, the Garden of Eden. And in the middle of this amazing garden, he places two naked people. You can laugh. I think it's pretty cool. Adam and Eve. And there's a reason they were naked. There's a reason. He places them in the garden. And in the middle of that garden, God plants two trees. One tree is the tree of life. And the other tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he gets Adam and Eve who are made in the image of God. 
And he places them before the two trees. And this is what God says. Adam, Eve, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat that tree. Don't eat that tree. That was it. Why is God not controlling? If God were controlling, there would have been no tree of knowledge and good and evil in the garden. Because he had created two people that are in the image of God, and people created in the image of God have the power to make choices. So he puts him there, and he has these two trees, and he says to Adam, don't make the wrong choice. He doesn't even say make the right choice. He says don't make the wrong choice. And he tells him what the wrong choice is. He gave him a pop quiz and the answer at the beginning of the class. We know what Adam did. He made a powerless choice. He made a powerless choice and that ruined his relationship with God. My point is God isn't controlling. He gives us the power to make choices. Theologically, some call it free will. And I hate that term. I do, because I think our will is either surrendered to God or enslaved to darkness. I don't think there's an in-between. But we do have the ability to make choices. And so we see this, that God, through this, that God isn't trying to control us. And so what we need to learn about being powerful is that we don't control others. God hasn't given us the gift, the power of other control. He's given us the power of self-control. Everybody inside of my skin, all my multiple personalities, that's who I control. I talk to them a lot. You do too, going down the road. Don't you love going? I know nowadays with smartphones, people, you think, well, they probably have their head free on. But I've been around long enough. People were talking in their cars long before smartphones came around. Everybody's crazy is all I'm saying. So... So you have the power to make these choices in your life. And that is a, a, that is a significant power. Jesus said this to the disciples. You didn't choose me, I chose you. Now, that, that may seem like such a short verse, it can just blip right off the radar. But what you don't know is, is that in Jesus' day, disciples picked the rabbi. Rabbis didn't pick the disciples. So Jesus inverted the system from the very beginning. And, and I want you to know, this is so incredibly powerful. Christy and I love, we love to help marriages. We, we love to help. It's, it's a lot of fun. We get to work with young couples and, uh, before they get married, but it's also fun to work with couples before they've totally blown everything up. I'm just throwing it out there for free. And, uh, <laughs> but one of the things that I find is that um, I, I call it relationship inertia. We ask couples about the choices they've made. What got them to the place where they decided to be married and all those kind of things. And here's what I find a lot of time, I call it, we call it relationship inertia, and I'm sure we got it from someone way smarter than us, is that they met someone at church, or not church. <laughs> Who knows? They met someone. And, and, and all of a sudden they liked them, they were attractive, they were attracted toward each other, and they began to spend time together, and they went out on a date, and, and it progressed on, and, and things just happened. <laughs> because that's how love works. <laughs> 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 and 
And here they are, and Chris and I are pulling, we're talking to them at a table, and hopefully we're doing a symbus with them, save your marriage before it starts, and help them kind of work through their issues before they get married. And, and we're having this conversation, and we're finding out that at no point along the way did someone make a conscious choice to pursue them. It just happened. And you're like, isn't that how love works? No, that is not. Please stop. Give yourself a swat on the hand, man. No. Love is a choice. That's right. And here's what it says, and I think I'm going to write this into my marriage ceremonies going forward. Love says, I choose you. That's right. You have any idea how powerful that is? How would you like to be the person that your person chose? What would that do for your relationship to have a powerful choice by the way it's never too late if you just relationship inertia yourself into 30 years of marriage you're like it could never it could happen it could happen stop now and pick each other choose each other because this all begins with a choice so powerful people make choices amen Powerful people also change their environment. They don't allow their environment to change them. So here's what I want you to do. I want every one of you to look down right now and look at those things attached to your ankles. Feet. Some of them smell worse than others, but you've got them on your feet. Feet. Those things are magical. Do you know what happens when your feet move? Your ears go with them. Wherever your feet go, that's where your ears go. Michael, what's your point? I'll tell you my point. My point is that sometimes we endure toxic and dysfunctional environments that all we really need to do is walk away from. That's a choice. How powerful is that to take your ears somewhere else with your feet? You don't have to endure these abusive places. You can take your ears elsewhere. Powerful people change their environment. They don't allow their environment to change them. Powerful people also choose to love because that's the gift, right? He's given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love. Jesus lived his whole existence with vulnerability and openness just as the Father intended. He took full responsibility for the choices that he made. And as they're nailing him to a cross for those choices, he's still accepting full responsibility, saying, Father, don't punish them for this. They don't know what they're doing. And he takes it all on. And this is the beginning and the foundation of, of love, to, to open our lives, to open our hearts to other people, to seek to connect you can hurt me. You can destroy me. But you cannot make me not love you. That's what Jesus said. You see? And so we can make those choices to love. And I think, I think a lot of us in our life know that already. I think we've had tough relationships with maybe parents, maybe children, maybe spouses. And we've had to make choices to love people when the last thing we felt was love for them. And so we, we can choose that love. And as we go through this series, there's a, there's a whole sermon where we're going to talk about boundaries and respect. And, and so right now, I'm going to go ahead and qualify with this with this. We don't stay in disrespectful conversations. We don't stay. We let our feet take us to a non-toxic environment. 
And that's okay. That's okay. Even Jesus exited things, okay? We're going to show you how Jesus even had boundaries. But my point is, he still chose to love. And in fact, if you don't have boundaries in your life, it means that you don't value yourself enough. And and because you have no personal value in you, it makes you incapable of connection and love of others. And so, but I am getting ahead of myself. That's later in the series. I I want to conclude today with this this question. What's it going to be for you? This is the application point. Is it going to be powerlessness where everybody in the world has more power than me until I get mad and can't take any more and I've had enough abuse and then I blow up and then they beat me down again and we just do this cycle over and over again? Am I going to keep living my life with villains and victims and heroes on some script that always fails and keeps blowing up? Or am I going to make some choices? This isn't a magic bullet. No one's going to walk out that door today completely free of their past unless God does some kind of deliverance miracle in another way. I don't have that for you. What I do have for you is a beginning, a first step. The realization that a powerful person makes choices. And when I can begin to make choices, and I have the power to make choices, I can begin to move my life toward God toward real connection, toward real love. Will it happen today? It can start today. Jesus is about journeys. In even the instantaneous miracles, even Lazarus, the story of the resurrection of Lazarus has a backstory. And you are in your backstory right now. Your miracle's coming. And you have the power to make choices that move you to the miracle. So what is it going to take today? Uh, It's time to repent. Change my mind. Repent means change my mind and take a higher view. And so it's time to begin to think of my life differently, to change the way I think. It's time to identify the lies that you believe. That you're not worthy. That you make, that, that you don't have any value. That no one cares about you. That you're powerless. Those are lies. Those are lies. Those are not true. How do I know that? 2 Timothy 1.7. God has not given us the spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and of love and of self-control. These are gifts from my Father. He says I have them, so I have them. Man, we start living like that. It's going to change everything in our life. Let's bow our heads just for a minute. Worship team, if I could have you guys. What I want to challenge you to do in this, this, this moment of, of reflection, of prayer, is I want you to, to recognize that there are some lies that are robbing you of your power in life. Lies that are lying to you. <laughs> and, and we how we have a lie is we renounce it. I renounce the lie. It's not a magic bullet. Lies are persistent. They have to be renounced several times, sometimes. So if you've got a lie in your life, particularly one that attacks your strength in Christ, I want you to renounce it in your heart right now. Just say something like, in your heart, I I renounce the lie that I'm weak, I can't change, I have no hope, I'm powerless. And pray something like, I want to nail this lie to the cross with Jesus. 
and send it away from me, never to return. And then in that prayer, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to do something. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to give you a truth to replace the lie. And what I want you to do as we conclude this service is to make sure that when you ask the Holy Spirit to replace the lie with the truth, that you take a moment and listen and you make notes on the thoughts that you have immediately after asking that question. And then you write that down and you begin to replace the lie that you've been told with the truth of a loving Father who's proud of you and has given you power and has given you love and self-control. Father, I pray that you bless this room with powerful people. I pray that you take us through this series and you move us from powerlessness to power. That yes, we may be in situations that we have no control over the things around us, but oh Lord, we have control over the things within us. And Lord, we can begin to learn how to step out and make choices that are going to change the things within us. And Father, we can do that with you, hand in hand. It's a journey. It's not a magic bullet. Help us, Lord. Make us powerful. Help us walk out what you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.